You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. And we are back on a Monday. Hopefully everybody had a great weekend. I know in Iowa here it was hot as balls. And so what did I decide to do? I finally got around to doing some deer stuff. I got some trail cameras hung up. I got some mineral stations uh, refreshed. And uh, I should be good to go for another week until uh, I get some more trail cameras in. And uh, then I'll go and hang those up as soon as I possibly can but uh, it's the velvet rut my friends so if you have a trail camera go put one out and watch your deer grow that's this is this is one of my favorite times other than shed hunting you know and not counting the hunting portion of it but checking trail cameras in the summertime and going shed hunting are probably close ties for whitetail related activities that is not actually hunting so um i love i love checking my trail cameras i love participating in the velvet rut and that makes me happy now today's podcast right uh matthews and we're going to be talking to a couple really intelligent gentlemen um one is gary simons uh he goes way back. Uh, he's going to talk to us today about uh, some of the history, not just of Matthews uh, and their company, but of the compound bow overall. So he has a lot of interesting information to share with us about um, how the compound bow was introduced into uh, the archery industry, what people's reactions were to it. And then he talks about his journey uh, with Bear and with Matthews. Um, And then we also talk with Mark Hayes. He's an engineer. And uh, we discuss the ins and outs of, you know, what they do to come up with a, a new bow every year, what they're trying to accomplish, the research and development, the engineering portion of it. So we, what we have today is just a really in-depth, detailed look, not only as Matthews as a company, but as what it takes to make an extremely, I guess, detailed product, uh, an extremely 
I guess what I'm saying is to make a bow year after year that lives up to the brand name that is Matthews. So uh, really, really cool. Really, a lot of information. If you're a gear nut, you're going to love this one. But before we get into today's podcast, we're going to talk with Fred Doherty of Wasp Archery about what makes their blades so special. What makes a wasp broadhead blade so special is that for 40 years we have come up with the perfect combination of stainless steel, the hardness of that steel, the angle at which the last edge is ground to, and then the final millimeter of that edge is, is honed with a very fine wheel uh, to an even greater angle. The sharpness of any blade, whether it be a surgeon's scalpel or an axe, uh, is determined by that last angle. It has to be a combination when it comes to a broadhead of very, very sharp, but also very, very tough so that the blade itself doesn't break, and so that, but so that the sharpness causes hemorrhaging like it's supposed to uh, when you shoot an animal. And there you have it. If you guys want to find out more information about wasp broadheads, visit wasparchery.com. And if you are a listener, if you're listening right now, that makes you a listener, enter the discount code when you buy your wasp broadheads, nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, no spaces. And uh, you're going to receive $20 off of your purchase. So that's, or excuse me, 20%, I'm sorry, 20% off of all broadhead purchases by entering the discount code 9fingers on wasparchery.com to buy their broadheads. And I'm repeating myself now, but 20% off for broadheads is pretty kick-ass. Thanks to guys at Wasp. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. Let's get into today's podcast with Gary Simons and Mark Hayes of Matthews. All righty, guys, this is a big one. On the phone with me now uh, from Matthews Archery is Mark Hayes and Gary Simmons. Is that correct? Simons. Simons, Gary Simons. Again, guys, you're going to learn I'm horrible with last names. I think I screw up a last name on every episode of this podcast. But, hey, first off, I want to say thank you guys for uh, taking time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, no worries. All right, so Matthews Archery, right? Um, Big company, uh, notable company. Um, lots of bows get, uh, sold every year, but those guys, I mean, Matthews has a start, had a starting point at some, at some point. And, uh, that's a little bit where, why Gary is on the phone with us today. Uh, and before we get into all that, Gary, why don't you tell us your story, your background and and a little bit of the history of, of how you fit into this archery game? Well, I, I've been doing it for a number of years. Back in the uh, mid to uh, later 70s, I did consultant work and that uh, for a couple of different people. One of those turned out to be uh, bear archery. <clears throat> and in uh, 1979, based on some of the work I did for them, uh, they invited me to come down and not only explain it to them, but 
they made me an offer to go with them. So I ended up I ended up leaving a wonderful state of Wisconsin and moving down to Florida and and opened up the new plant with them in Florida. They had moved they moved made the move from Grayling down to Florida and I moved from Wisconsin down to Florida in seventy nine and uh, I ended up being um, Vice President of Engineering Research and Development down there for uh, over the next 20 years that I was with them. <clears throat> and that's basically what uh, first put me in contact with uh, Matt McPherson. <clears throat> his, his first archery company was uh, McPherson Archery. I don't know how many people know that. I would suspect they might. Uh, think that that would be uh, uh, something that would happen with the last name McPherson. But uh, <clears throat> when I saw that uh, in about 1985 there was some magazine advertisements and that, that uh, uh, there was a new player in the uh, archery area, bow manufacturer called McPherson Archery. And um, when I saw that, uh, that uh, got my attention because being a hot rod guy and automotive guy also, uh, I thought maybe that uh, this company McPherson, that makes McPherson struts all, all of a sudden got interested in archery products and <laughs> there's going to be a lot of money behind them in that. So I called, I called McPherson Archery and and uh, had my first conversation then with Matt McPherson, and that's where we first uh, uh, had a conversation, he and I. And then about <clears throat> five years later, uh, Matt uh, decided to give me a call when he came up with his next bow concept. Uh, McPherson Archery uh, <clears throat> was kind of unique, too, because it wasn't just the name that caught me, it was the <clears throat> out-of-the-box thinking that this company had, you know. They came out with the McPherson Intercam, which was a totally new concept to compound bows. Uh, you know, he, he was doing the camming between the cam and the axle, where all of the other cams prior to that were all uh, cammed on the periphery. And basically that wasn't a... Uh, such a big deal back then because they were all circles that were offset eccentrically, you know, and that's what constituted a cam. Well, not this McPher McPherson character. He came up with the inner cam, and and um, that was, you know, that was just sort of scary at the time. Five years later, he come called me up and said he had another new bow concept and wondered if uh, I'd be interested in it. So I told him naturally, you know, I, I, you know, I could appreciate the way he thought and that. So uh, we got together and uh, he uh, showed me the one cam concept. And uh, I decided in a very short period of time there that, because there had been, you know, there'd been a one cam bow, the uh, Martin Dynabo and and, uh, you know, those kind of bows that had one cam, but they had just horrific uh, knocking point travel problems and that. And when Matt came to me with this thing, uh, 
it came a long way to solving those knocking point problems and that. So after his visit with me, uh, I told the president of the company that, uh, you know, we, we sure should license this concept from him. Uh, well, after about two weeks or so playing around with the concept and that, I went back in to see the president of the company of Bear Archery at the time, Bob Kelly, and I told him that um, we didn't want to license it. We wanted to own it, you know. So right. uh, he made some. They made some phone calls, and uh, they got me the uh, capability of making an offer to Matt. And uh, that's what happened. I, I uh, sat down with Matt again. We made a deal, and uh, I gave him a chunk of money, and and uh, also the ability to. Uh, build one Cambos himself without paying us any royalties or anything like that. And uh, that was in 1990. And uh, <clears throat> by 1990, we were also buying bowstrings from him. He had his own bowstring manufacturing facility and, uh, you know, he's doing, doing pretty well with that. And he was uh, one of our string suppliers uh, along with, we had we had another uh, big string supplier at the time. Uh, but then in about 1991, I guess I was up there uh, visiting his facility. And uh, on the way to the airport, he mentioned to me, he says, well, I think it's about time that I get into the bow building business, you know. And he, told me at the time, he says, I don't, I really don't want to get too big because he had had the experience with uh, McPherson, only this time around uh, he didn't have any partners to, to deal with. And he says, I just want to do maybe 5,000 bows a year or something like that. <laughs> well, that's great. I says, that's great, you know. And uh, in 1992, he then entered the uh, uh, one Campbell into the marketplace. Up until that time, it was just Bear Archery was, uh, and I, I tried to license uh, and did license a few other people to build one cams. But uh, when Matt got into the business, uh, uh, he, Matt has a, I don't know if I mentioned it, but this guy really thinks out of the box, you know. A lot of people, uh, business consultants and all that nowadays are telling you, you know, well, you got to think out of the box if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, grow your company and that kind of stuff. Well, Matt doesn't know any other way to think other than out of the box, you know, and that's that's why things like the intercam happen and one cam the way he did it happen and that kind of stuff. So part of that is the way he marketed his product, the way he advertised his product and everything. And uh, I think it <clears throat> got successful to the point that it sort of surprised him because a year or two later, uh, I visited him up at uh, his facility and uh, he told me, well, I, I know I told you 5,000 bows, but I think I'm gonna have to, you know, look at maybe 10,000 or so bows a year. <laughs> and it, it just got uh, bigger and bigger from then. You know, I, I mean, the right. guy, 
the guy is, uh, he's a true innovator, and he knows not only, you know, what's happening in the industry a lot of the times, but he gets these insights as to where he should be going. And uh, a lot of times, uh, um, he spends a lot, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hours in uh, designing and prototyping and things like that. And when uh, we came out with the uh, perimeter weighting, when he came out with the perimeter weighting, uh, I was still at Bear Archery, and uh, I thought, "Wow, now this is a this is another concept." Because um, people, uh, there's a lot of people that think they understand things about archery equipment that necessarily uh, don't have the inside track, like adding weight to the limb tips and that kind of stuff is going to uh, be an, have an adverse effect on bows. Well, he added weight out at the limb tips with a perimeter weighting concept in that and found that uh, there could be some improvements in that. And his first perimeter weighting attempt I think he built uh, he built 134 different cam designs and perimeter weighting to find out going backwards that he had actually hit the right combination and the right uh, design at about 129, <laughs> and that doesn't bother him a bit. I, I'd say as recent as. Uh, uh, two or three years ago, um, we had several bushel baskets full of cams when we were looking at another new design. So he'll put the effort into it, and uh, it isn't ready for the marketplace until it's right. And that's, right. that's part of it that uh, I really appreciate and one of the reasons why uh, um, I'm you know working with him. I enjoy it. The guy has got a good grasp on not only the engineering side of things, but uh, the marketing side and uh, financial side and that kind of stuff. He's uh, He stays on top of what's going on. So, Gary, back when you said he introduced the intercam and then later on the one-cam bow, um, at the time, was that really big news in the archery industry? I mean, was that a, a, a leap in innovation? Well, the intercam was was different because it was a different way of doing it. Now, it didn't have the impact in the industry that the one cam did, okay? Because um, at the time Matt had uh, McPherson Archery, he had a couple partners with him, and they didn't have the same mindset as he did as far as, uh, you know, how you should introduce the product, uh, advertising, marketing, and things like that. And uh, the intercam was a, a, a real different uh, situation as opposed to what was in the marketplace. And uh, it would have taken uh, a lot more education for people for the concept to catch on. and Realistically, in hindsight, uh, we've done uh, probably much more innovative things than the intercam since then. But when he came out with the one cam, then he had, you know, all of his ducks in a row, 
and uh, he didn't have any uh, help in the way of partners to make the decisions on what he could do as far as marketing and and uh, you know he was he got on right away with machined handles and uh, uh, the new one cam system and it was just one innovation after another and with his uh, his mindset and the way he saw how to introduce products into the industry uh, his company just it grew like wildfire. We were, we were in uh, what um, Inc. 500 fastest, Inc. 500 uh, fastest growing companies. You know, uh, when we uh, moved here to uh, uh, Sparta and that, and started doing business in this area. Right. So, from your time spent with Bear, you know, all the way from day one for you till today. How how have you seen the archery industry, specifically compound industry, change? Well, you got you got to understand. I was I was there in the, in the beginning. You know, you you realize April of this year marks the 50th anniversary of the first photograph in an archery magazine of a compound bow. Wow. Fifty years ago, come July, was the first advertisement in an archery magazine for the sale of a compound bow, the Allen wow. Allen compound bow. And Tom Jennings was building those compound bows for Allen at that time. So really, this thing's only been around for 50 years, and there's been a lot of uh, improvement over the years. You know, you look at the mechanical efficiencies of what it is that we're producing today versus uh, the early compound bows. The early compound bows only had uh, some of them 15, 20% let off, okay? And for a number of years, uh, even the NFAA restricted, after we got the NFAA to accept the compound bow to be usable, the NFAA had a limitation on uh, let off at 50%. And, uh, uh, so there's so many different things that have happened to get us to where we are. The compound bow was was a significant advantage because now you could store um, more energy. The, the archer could yeah. put more energy into a system, and consequently that energy hopefully went into the arrow, and it did. You could shoot lighter weight arrows with compound bows, and you could put more energy into the system, so arrow velocities increased. But early compound bows, some of them had had uh, oh, hysteresis uh, levels of, uh, say, 11, 12% is probably one of the worst I've seen, you know. Nowadays, we're talking about hysteresis uh, in our, our bows that is uh, unbelievably low. So I, I tested some of our bows at three uh, percent, you know, yeah. uh, mechanical efficiencies of the bows from the early bows to date has gotten much, much better. Uh, uh, we're launching arrows now that weigh five grains per peak pound of bow weight at efficiencies up as high as 86 percent. That's that's unheard of, you know. Uh, 
and if you shoot heavier weight arrows, hunting weight arrows, and and heavier weight arrows, uh, that get in get in some cases gets into the low 90 percentile. You know, so uh, I don't know as you can actually find another mechanical device that is operating in the efficiency area that we're operating today. You know, right? That's that's pretty exciting. You know. And as an engineer, sorry, as an engineer, is it your goal to like design equipment, you know, past, present, or future to try to hit that 100% efficiency? Well, you can't. It's not, you know, as an engineer, you you know, you know what the limitations are, you know, and realistically, you know, from work that we've done, we know. We know what the maximum possible efficiencies are. You know, I can, I can, we can test any bow that's in the marketplace and tell you what its theoretical efficiency could be, and none of the theoretical efficiencies uh, really get up much more than 95 percent, and they, and almost all of them have no way of ever approaching that. That, and you know, if you say. Uh, to reach your theoretical uh, efficiency, you almost have to shoot an infinitely weighted arrow. In other words, if you shoot a if you shoot a 10,000 grain arrow, uh, you know there's a possibility that you could hit in uh, uh, low to mid 90 percentile theoretically. You know, it, it just doesn't that curve the curve of bow efficiency is an asymptotic curve and that means that it goes up but it it starts leveling off and it never actually reaches the uh, theoretical highest value I don't know probably too much (laughs) well my mind is blown I'll tell you that right now I need like as soon as I get done with this podcast I'm going to go do some research on that curve you just mentioned (laughs) okay (laughs) <laughs> but you so, got to understand too, Dan, where the uh, energy is being lost and why you can't ever get to 100 is everything has energy. So sound, vibration, all that's energy, and the energy or friction, things like that. So the the archer is going to input his energy to get the bow to full draw. But there's things that just happen that uh, you can't overcome. Right. Okay, put that in the back of put that in the back of your head, Mark, because I want to I want to get back to that uh, in a little bit. But but Gary, in you mentioned fifty years ago, the compound bow was introduced. What was the reaction from the archery community of that first compound bow? Oh, it was it was. I can say it was a little mixed, but it was mostly negative uh, for a lot of people because they were all traditional archers, you know, right. and and there was opposition to changes. And we've gone, we went through other things like the introduction of sights to archery equipment, you know, and the introduction of release aids. Release aids had only been uh, in the marketplace uh, for a few years when the compound bow was introduced. You know, so there were still people fighting over uh, uh, use of release agents and that, and finding the proper place 
for them in, uh, in the use of archery equipment. So uh, it was, it took a lot of, it took a lot of time to get, a, there's a natural inertia in archery. You know, it's a, there's a lot of things like people say, oh, the, the, the curve of the bow and the flight of the arrow and that kind of stuff. And you get into these um, uh, people that just don't want to change anything. So that right. that posed a problem for the compound bow for a number of years. And the, really, the compound bow, as it was introduced uh, back in the in, uh, late 60s and that, uh, they had to, we had to make compound bows longer than what we make them today because people were going from longer archery equipment to shorter archery equipment. And if you made something too short, there, there was even some inertia when the uh, traditional bow manufacturers tried to shorten up the length of traditional bows so that they'd be easier to manage in wooded areas and stuff like that. Now you're shortening it up. The early compound bows generally, uh, for most people, was, was probably about 48-inch axle to axle, but some of the early compound bows, like made by Wing Archery, um, Ramco, um, Bear Archery, were 56 to um, oh, as much as 58 inches axle to axle, okay? Because you have to you have to also remember that more than 98% of the people shooting archery at the time the compound bow was introduced were shooting fingers. Right. I started with fingers. That's right. And and one of the things that they uh, would the shooting public would scream about would be finger pinch. You know, too too tight of a string angle and this and that. So you see, there's been a natural gravitation in getting to where we are today. You know, most people that shoot compound bows are shooting D loops. You know, and yep. uh, at the time I joined Bear Archery in '79 uh, and the early '80s and that kind of stuff, still 90% of the people were shooting fingers. Okay, wow. so that has a lot to do with happened with how how the compound bow could be allowed to progress you know you had to right. you have to re-educate people uh, as to the benefits they can have and and get them to move in that direction there was another thing that happened that uh, really changed arrow launch velocities you know and uh, efficiencies and that was only that happened in the 80s also and that's the introduction of synthetic string material you know, huh. uh, up until uh, the <clears throat> introduction of, of synthetic string material, I mean, obviously, Dacron, there was Dacron B35, Dacron B50, but uh, in, uh, at the time the compound bow was entering into the marketplace, the bow string material was Dacron B50, okay, which was a pretty darn good bow string material, but then when things came along like Kevlar, Kevlar is a lot less extensible, there's less energy eaten up in the system, and you could get higher arrow velocities. So immediately, like say people like Theta shooters and that went to Kevlar. 
because they could get that at additional arrow velocity. Unfortunately, Kevlar only lasted about 1,500 shots, and then you had to put on a different bowstring. Well, that doesn't work for bow hunters and things like that. So Kevlar never made much of an impact in most archery equipment. But even then, in the mid to late 80s, there was a company that came out with a bowstring that was Kevdak. The performance wasn't any better, but the guy that was manufacturing the string thought that was the greatest thing in the world because now he could supply more strings to people because the Kevlar would break down quicker <laughs> and people think they needed another bowstring. But with the introduction of Spectrum materials, Dyneema and Spectrum, yep. that was a that was as big a change in arrow velocities as like say program cams, you know. Right. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. I happened to have built a bow at the time and introduced it just prior, uh, a year or two prior to the advent of uh, spectrum materials. And that bow was uh, kind of interesting because it was, it was built for, for a, uh, to be a target bow in that. But uh, its efficiency wasn't as good. It was a program cam. And with D50, it was it was a, one of the first bows with a string all the way around the cam and things like that. And with right. D50, that thing uh, was not nearly as good a performer. I later put some spectral material on that same bow and got a 14% increase in in uh, performance of that bow. You know, so there's a lot of things that have. Uh, got us to where we are. There's been a lot of developments. That's awesome. I wish you could see my face right now because I'm literally smiling from the the technical talk that you are sharing with us today. And I know that my the the hardcore listeners of this podcast are smiling too. This is awesome. Um, but with the introduction of that initial compound bow, um, was there? A correlation to the increase in bow hunting at the time? Did the initial compound bow spark something where now more people were bow hunting? Did you have any knowledge of that? No, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, instantaneous or anything like that. Uh, yeah. It progressively got. I think that it was one of those things that took on a life of its own. Okay, it, it's one thing to be able to give a bow hunter a, if he's asking for uh, equipment that fits into a smaller package, it's easier for me to carry into the woods or uh, it, it's got a certain profile that it doesn't get hang, hung up on every branch and twig that I walk by. The, right. the compound bow might have been that, but even then you got to understand it was 48 inches axle to axle, so it was an improvement. But the other thing that was is it was also considerably heavier. So the mass weight of a compound bow was much more than that stick bow that he's been used to carrying, you know. So right. what happened is is that um, as people became more and more... I, when I was shooting a lot of target archery when after the compound bow had been introduced, there were target ranges that wouldn't allow you to use a compound bow on them, you know. Wow. So... Uh, there was there was a lot of uh, 
inertia that had to be overcome. But right. more and more people uh, began to realize what the benefits of the compound bowl was. You know, and it was nice. For the first time, uh, women could shoot the 80-yarder and things like that, you know. So uh, as people learned more about the compound bowl, uh, it was just natural that it was going to uh, be a... Uh, an instrument of choice for the bow hunters, you know. Right, right. So now kind of circling all the way back to Matthews, Gary, when did, when do you feel Matthews really had a grip on the archery community uh, and the, the people who started using compound bows knew Matthews and knew that um, they were going to come out with new and innovative products every year? Well, I think that that's, that's one of those things that's kind of interesting, too, about, about Matt, is that he was building a good product, uh, and he was, um, he was real sharp in advertising. Uh, and it was a period of time also there where a lot of the major archer manufacturers uh, weren't, they had withdrawn some of their support from, like, say, target archery and things like that. Right. And uh, with the advent of the IBO and uh, then with ASA, uh, all of a sudden you open up compound bows to a whole new group of people, you know, because uh, target archery, uh, NFA target archery, got to be very, very competitive, okay? to the point that maybe a lot of bow hunters uh, didn't enjoy it as much as much as they once had, okay? Because nobody likes to go out and have their head handed to them on the target range because you didn't shoot anywhere near as good a score as these guys that practiced all week, you know? Right. Well, with the IBO and the ASA, now the average bow hunter uh, could get out there and compete, and and uh, I think that was a big impetus to uh, you know uh, that compound bow, and that really promoted uh, uh, a lot of uh, growth in in both hunting and in uh, the acceptance of the compound bow. And what Matt did is he saw the IBO and the ASA is a wonderful tool to use in advertising and he put on a good shooting staff. He had people who wanted to shoot his the equipment he was building. He put on a shooting staff and um, when people see people winning with a certain type of equipment, uh, it tends to be motivational for them to give that a try, you know. Right. And I think that that helped a great deal too. And, uh, getting more of our equipment out there and uh, getting it into people's hands. And he, like myself, is a, you know, big believer in, you know, pick it up and shoot it, you know, and see if you like it, you know. It, right. If you're going to buy a bowl, uh, you're going to the store and you buy a bowl uh, just off the rack, uh, um, you, how do you know what you've got? 
you should you, you know you should you should shoot it to experience and see if you've got what you think you purchased you know and when they do that with Matthew's equipment it's just led to success right that's awesome now mark i didn't forget about you here um and, and kind of transitioning from you know the early days of the company to the present and you know gary feel free to step in uh once mark is done here but you know every year you guys have to sit around a table whether that is you know with the president owner of the company with marketing with engineering and you have to you have to come up with some kind of new design or or a uh, a remix basically of a old design what what are those conversations uh, sound like on that table when you're trying to come up with a new innovative idea for the next bow? <laughs> it depends on the year. Uh, they can be pretty interesting, but uh, you know it's a combination of a lot of things when that happens. And the main uh, contributing factor, though, is is Matt and his genius. He's kind of, I mean, he's still super involved and he kind of just lets his mind go and he's been thinking about things that for years that he's like I want to try that and he's just waiting the right system to try it on and he'll be tinkering and things like that and he might just find the holy grail and this is what it's going to be this year Um, at other points and that's usually like magical years really when that happens Um, at other points where when we're sitting on great technology that we feel is the best in the industry, um, it's just time to refine it. You know, what, how's the market feeling? Um, where's everyone's opinions going? What can we do to improve this little thing? Or, um, you know, really refine the great technology that has worked for us in the past year and just put it into the next newest thing that solves the, the little... Um, spots that we would like to just, um, you know, help out with. So, can you give us really, an example of of some of those technologies that you, you know, at first were groundbreaking, and then it's time to refine as the years go on? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, right now, if you look at the cross center cam, it's really the heart of every bow we have in the lineup right now, and it is because. It's so great. I mean, the ABS system has been around for us for a few years now, and, you know, that system should not be the most efficient system ever tested, but it is. And the reason it shouldn't be is because it has twice as many bearings as anyone else has in their camps, um, and that's just source of more friction. But the way the ABS is able to uh, take up and sync the limb tips it creates a system that's, like I said, the most efficient system that we've ever tested. And then on top of that, you put a cross-centric technology, which was born from NoCam. Um, it just tunes like a dream. Our dealers love it. You can, you know, us at the shop, we can set a bow up and eyeball the rest and know what the the leans on the cam should look like and shoot one hole through paper and that's all it takes. I mean, that cross-center cam with the center pull technology, center of the bows right in the middle of the burger button, that is a great system, and it is, our, in our opinion, the best that there is right now. So 
it's our job to refine that technology. Let's find the perfect, um, perfect every little detail about it and just keep um, working with it because it is the best currently. And that's one example of, you know, things and you know, there's things we stick with like the harmonic dampers and stabilizers. We've changed the weights on them and things like that, but really there isn't a better vibration dampening system in the marketplace. Okay. And it's become a staple for us too. So, and I could go right. on about some of the technologies, but right. So, in in some of these meetings, you know, the initial meetings like okay, here I have this idea or um how in there's always this conflict and this is from my experience and not in the archery uh industry but in other industries where marketing comes to the table with an idea engineering comes to the table and says are you kidding me how much you know what i mean like hey we want a bow that shoots a thousand feet per second or we want it to be invisible or you know outside of the really outside of the box things as an engineer is it your team's what what is it about your team that has to maybe wrangle in marketing or wrangle in somebody else and say, listen, it's simple physics? Yeah, I mean, it's it helps, easy. It helps when the guy who is the head of our team, the head of our team, has also got an engineering mind. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, I mean, Matt is both in that he has a marketing mind and an engineering mind, so he's flying, but it we do get... Uh, marketing coming up here with ideas and at times just like you described it's almost laughable like you know guys that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen that but you know what's cool and we've we've all taught ourselves to do this is to just let it sit let that idea sit because although their idea might sound crazy and completely impossible it's it spurs another idea and it, it's really cool how um how that can happen you know we we sit there and say no because of this you can't do that but wait a minute you might be able to do this and it, it does drive innovation and it's one of our core values um, you know the three eyes integrity impact and the last one's innovation and the entire company is part of that innovation uh, cycle right so once an idea you know, let's say that roundtable meeting sparks an idea. Where does that, you know, and, and then once that idea maybe becomes a reality, let's say in a prototype form, what kind of research and development is done to, uh, I guess, research that design and then refine it to get it to the, the next step, which is to market? Well, kind of backwards uh, what you listed there there's usually a prototype before it's an idea and you know Matt's ideas that like I said are just flying all the time he's constantly making prototypes of these ideas and he'll show up one day with a bow that he pulls out of his jeep and said I've been working on this all night you know and yeah it it's really cool uh, in that our engineering group gets to um, kind of just supplement his work and he's able to to do so much more because his process is to do the prototypes and refine them to get the efficiencies get the um, all the levels correct all the parts um, for his prototype done 
and he gets to hand it to us and say, get it to market. And that's where our group really steps in is to take his prototype, recreate it, figure out how we're going to manufacture it, test it, cycle it. You know, he's got his own strength cycling machines, but we have different cycling machines, and we are hand shooting, we're setting them up, and you know, we kind of hit a groove. We've done this so, so many years in a row where we're able to crank out a lot of new product quicker than um, you know, a lot of different industries. We're unique in that we come out with brand new products every single year. Right. Sounds like a lot of reverse engineering. Yeah. Uh, it's, That's it's, usually what our competitors do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then it sounds to me like the idea guy is Matt and, yep. and he, he says, Hey, I'm, you know, he, he brings the idea or he brings the prototype. You guys do your job. Is there ever a time where one of his ideas is, is maybe so outside of the box that maybe the general public is not ready for it yet? Or you, you've had to put it on the back burner or you just say, listen, this is a great idea. We got a but it, it's not, got it's not a work. All of those. <laughs> we got a lot of those uh, and it just happens to be the case you know uh, you know I, I mentioned it before so you have to bring the buying public along with you you know right. educate them and and uh, introduce some things in a uh, fashion that they they are acceptable you know a good so, example of that is parallel limbos uh, Matt had a parallel limbo Gosh, I don't even know the year. Back in the 90s. Yeah. But it was just so radical that if you put our bows side by side from from that day till now, they progressively get more parallel, more and more, and just kind of, like Gary said, bringing the buying public along with us to get to that. We knew how good it would be eventually for canceling vibration and other benefits, but it's too radical almost to, to just do that. Right. So do you feel that Matthew sets the tone for the rest of the industry as far as, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak? You know, everybody well, comes out with a new bow, everybody, every year. It's almost like if you don't come out with a new bow, you're treading water and you're not swimming. There's, I think, uh, you know, there's great innovation all over the industry. and Yeah, that's, that's a position that different people enjoy at different times, you know. Uh, and and if you're really if you're really good in the industry, then you're not only creating your own stuff, you're building off of uh, what your friends in the industry are creating too, you know. Right. It's it's not uh, it's not like one particular manufacturer uh, completely dominates the industry, you know. Uh, it's just, there's several of them that have the majority of the market share, but nobody is, uh, gonna take over the industry. Right. And you know, we applaud great engineering too, Dan. Um, there's been fantastic, um, uh, innovations in the marketplace that have got us to where we are here, where 
we as bow hunters are just absolutely spoiled, and it's it's awesome the uh, technology that is out there right now. It's Matthew's job to just continue to continue to innovate. Uh, we don't like gimmicks; we like them to be real, and we we test every everything, every part of our bows. Um, we're always trying to improve so that we never take a step back, and that's kind of where push the envelope. Yep, and then like Gary said, we just challenge a consumer to shoot them shoot them all side by side because we're confident in our uh, product and we're we're proud to have it out there right right so as as you guys kind of continue down this path of innovation design and engineering you know you guys have taken with you a loyal following of of people in the industry and um, uh, I guess consumers, so to speak. At what point does the brand overshadow? And this is this—I don't know if this is a, an engineering question or or a marketing question, but the brand overshadow the innovation. And what I mean by that is, you got people who are going to buy a Matthews because it's a Matthews, and they don't care what the the innovation to them, the technology to them, is secondary. We have a responsibility. All it is is, is that it, it makes us very aware of our responsibility. We have to keep uh, trying to make the most innovative and the best products out there. It pushes you more. You know, right. you work harder. Uh, you know, it, it would be dishonest to uh, think that people uh, should buy a Matthews bowl just because it's got Matthews on it. You know, right. we like to think that people buy Matthews bows because of what it is and how it performs. And we dedicate ourselves to trying to make the best possible equipment we can. Now, uh, I hope we never get to the point where we don't think or where we think that we can just make a Me Too product and put it out there and sell it. Uh, we don't, I, I don't want to make money that way. Uh, I want to give the customer what he deserves, you know. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so how much is Matthews influenced by the industry as a whole and not just the ideas that are brought to the table from Matthews, so to speak? Actually, you know, I, I'm going to break in just for a second, okay? I've, I've got a, Matt set me up in a research and development facility, and I'm connected directly with the company every day, anytime uh, anybody wants to talk to me. And I get a tremendous number of people that want to provide us with ideas all the time. You would be absolutely amazed at the number of people that invent archery things and they're looking for a home for them. So one of the things I do is, is that, and we have always, is remain totally open-minded about what's going on out there. We look at, we probably, in some cases, we probably know more about some of our competitors' products than they know about their products. <laughs> but, you know, but you, you, you have to do that. That's what it takes to be able to give the customer the kind of product that he deserves, okay? And in the same vein is that wouldn't I have been just in great condition 
if I'd have told the guy on the other end of the phone that told me he had a new idea for a compound bow, uh, that no thanks, uh, you know, uh, we know everything there is to know about compound bows, you know, and miss the boat on something like the one cam, you know. Right. That, that that's not the way we operate. We uh, we realize that number one, look at the patent office. Uh, all of those patents that are out there, uh, there are a tremendous number of them that came about on concepts that were developed in somebody's garage at one time. You know, so when somebody gets large so large that they think that they know everything and uh, or everything there is to know about something uh, then I think you stop making progress and that we're not going to put ourselves in that position so progress in a way is also influenced by science right there there is an equation in front of you and you have to figure out how to make that equation uh, the most efficient as possible. Do you see a plateau coming from an innovation standpoint in the archery industry? And any of you guys can answer that. Um, I don't know. Um, it depends on, I guess, what sense you're talking about a plateau. Um, you know, like Efficiency, talk- speed. Um, you know, I, I see bows coming out lighter and lighter every year. Um, you know, there's a variety of um, things that consumers look at uh, that help them make the decision on what bow they're going to purchase. But sci- I, and I had a conversation with an engineer from Bear Archery on a podcast, and he mentioned, um, uh, you know, the equation of brace height and axle, you know, axle to axle length and, and limb poundage. You know, there's a point where if you want, uh, let's say, speed, for example, um, a one inch brace height is going to be damn near impossible to sell to a consumer, right? Because it's going to be so difficult. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we tried that once at Bear Archery. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the Delta V that had, uh, that, that was a uh, uh, innovative design that was probably the lowest brace height bowl ever sold, uh, definitely at the time in that. And if you'd gone much lower, you could have maybe cut a guy's wrist off or something. But, you know, that, yeah, there's certain limitations like that. The thing that's really uh, sad is the number of people that think that some, some miraculous thing is going to happen that one of these days they're going to wake up and an archery bull will be able to shoot an arrow as fast as a rifle shoots a bullet, you know. Right. And... I can tell you for a fact that is not going to happen, you know. And if you look and even read, anybody really reads the definition of what defines archery uh, bow or equipment right now today, uh, that in itself places a limitation on how far uh, you can go with, with anything that is going to be considered an archery bow, okay? So uh, you have to be realistic about it. Now, who would have thought that uh, a change, some super bowstring material would have shown up and all of a sudden your bows would get much more efficient and that kind of stuff, you know. 
Uh, so you don't know. There could be some innovation. Well, and who would have thought that a good deal of our arrow speed is from the fact that people are shooting lighter and lighter arrows nowadays. What happened to arrow velocities when the overdraw was introduced into the hunting area instead of just in the flight bow shooting area, okay? That increased arrow velocities, okay? Um, if somebody were to make or come up with an arrow that was infinitely stiff and didn't weigh anything, uh, yeah, they can shoot faster arrows, but then you have the limitation of how much energy can that device that you shot that arrow out of accept and absorb, and how many times can it absorb it without self-destruction, okay? Because that's an area that we were approaching uh, back in the, uh, I, I think, uh, 90s, and that's why there are things like five grains per peak pound of bow weight arrow recommendations, and it wasn't, it was based on at that time the fact that most of the bow handles in the marketplace were die cast magnesium, okay? And people were experiencing uh, bow handle failures and that uh, because they were shooting too light arrows. Well, now we've gravitated to 6061 T6, 7075 uh, aluminums, and we can, we can absorb more energy after the impact, but we've, at Matthews, we've taken another look at the other side of that equation, too, and said, let's make the system as efficient as possible so that we don't have to absorb as much energy with it also, you know, because realistically, uh, product liability and consumer safety is a big thing to look at, you know, it's, it's, we have to be conscious of that, too. And realistically, you don't want to have the consumer doing things where he can hurt himself, you know, because realistically, a lot of them don't think about that, you know. Right, right. And so, you know, yeah, uh, I think that uh, when it comes to uh, maximum arrow velocities and that kind of thing, uh, it's going to be, it gets tougher and tougher to make gains every day right so elaborating on that just a hair and but at a different a different angle here how much i'll kind of i'll lead with this question with a a conversation i recently had with a a company that i talk with about a lot about in the hunting industry and i, I said hey man when are you going to change this so i can so i can do that and he's like man it's only been you and one other guy who have recommended, you know, have brought that to our attention. So we're not going to address it. However, we have had hundreds of people, you know, address us about this. So that's where we're going to put our attention. When it comes to design, innovation, engineering, how much of your ear is captured by the end user, by the consumer on, let's say, change for a future bow? Um. We definitely uh, listen to consumer, and we try to build where the market is going. However, our goal is also to build the best equipment for the most hardcore people. So right. um, 
you know, if we are bringing features out that uh, 90% of the market might not use, but the top 10% might or really want that, you know, that's where we want to be. We want to be the best equipment for the uh, most uh, engaged and discerning. Yeah, and passionate archer, really. And if, in our opinion, if we can make the best and satisfy that customer, then the industry will follow. And that's kind of really at the heart of what our product is. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that we're not, if people are thinking longer, if they're thinking shorter, different brace heights, you know, we've seen a change where a six inch hunting brace height has become normal. You know, we're gonna listen to that type of thing and obviously build bows to that. And that helps the the top archers that I was talking about before as well. But you know, we want the best in the world and the most passionate to have a piece of equipment that satisfies their their needs. And like I said, I think the industry will follow with that. So then moving forward, um I guess what is Matthew's goal or, uh, you know, a five-year plan or, I mean, is it to continue to keep doing what they've already been doing or is there another level to take this? Well, what is it that we've been doing that we wouldn't want to do? You know, <laughs> I mean, I guess that that's, that's probably the antithesis to what you said, but, you know, we're, we're just trying to make, the best possible archery equipment we can make. Now, why would we stop something like that? Right, right. Makes a lot of sense. You know, and there's things too, Dan, that people assume as normal um, in the bow, and I think they get used to things. But there's innovations that will come um, that people didn't think possible or thought that it wasn't a big deal until they could do something or couldn't do something, you know. There are things that have happened, even with the, um, what we've seen so far, that you know, no one, I don't think, thought they needed a reverse assist roller guard, let's say. But right. what that has helped us do is it puts less torque into the system, makes them more accurate, easier to tune, faster. You know, there's things that you accept as normal, like a... Um, Know, cable rod with a slider when you put that next to a reverse assist roller guard there's not much comparison really and there's there's going to be things like that in the future where we're constantly improving we're constantly questioning the norm uh to build really the best thing that we could we can for that year you know i'm sitting right here looking at uh, a, a bowl that's sitting at, on the floor over here and years ago you couldn't have built a bowl with a handle on it like is on this bowl, you know. Uh, it just wasn't possible. You couldn't do it in traditional archery bowls. The compound bowl allowed us to build this type of a handle and put it on a bowl, you know. When you're looking at severely reflexed handles and that, up until the compound bowl came along, uh, you never saw a bowl with a reflexed handle on it. Because you did that on a stick bow, it wanted to turn inside out. Right. But a compound bow allowed you to build a reflex handle. And by building a reflex handle, that's one of those things 
that changes the amount of energy that a person can put into a bow and consequently get into an arrow. So there's innovations like that that uh, happened. A lot of people haven't even given much thought to, you know. They, right. you know, this one's faster, uh, but they don't think why it's faster or why is it like that. So, yeah, there will be things like that that will happen. But, uh, you know, so and the other side of that is is that there will always be a certain number of people that will want a highly reflexed riser. There will always be some people that want a straight or a deflexed riser, okay? So realistically, uh, it behooves the company to be interested in both of them and not try to force one into shooting something else, you know? A, a person that, right now, a hunting bow, it's, it's probably pretty difficult to find a hunting bow that hasn't got a somewhat reflexed riser on it, okay? So if all of a sudden you decide you want to build deflexed riser bows, right away you're going to limit your market penetration. Right. So realistically, if a, a, I think a real good archery company uh, is experimenting all the time and trying to build, you build a target bow the way a target bow should be built, to benefit the people that want to shoot targets. You build a hunting bow the way the hunting uh, hunters uh, think a bow should be or the way that a hunting bow should be that'll benefit the hunter, you know. And those are just things that if you're conscientious about what you're doing, uh, you're going to have to decide how many of each one of those you're going to build, you know. Right. So how much of this is building a bow or designing a bow to fit the market versus educating the market on the technology that Matthews holds? Well, I don't know if you can separate the two because, uh, you know, like I say, we got closets full of things that we will introduce when we think the time is right. But on the other hand, uh, uh, and some of that is because the market may not quite be ready for it, or it may be that we don't have a big enough wallet to put out all the information to try to <laughs> convince the market that that's the right way to do it, you know. Right. So we enter some of these things um, somewhat uh, piecemeal into the marketplace, and, and, you know, if it's right, it's right. The consumer will recognize it, they'll catch on, and... You know, before you know it, uh, they'll be asking for it or more of it, okay? Um, we've introduced target bows in years gone by that um, were, for practical, I, I, from my standpoint, I would hear from some of our target shooters, I'm not shooting that, I'm shooting my, my last year's model or the uh, year before, you know, because I, I like it. And then... The next year when you introduce a target bow, all of a sudden they like the one that you introduced last year. That's what everybody's shooting, and, and uh, you know, uh, we should do that. So when we introduce a target bow, um, we like to think that it's going to have 
good acceptance when it's introduced, okay? But we're also well enough aware from past history that that doesn't always occur. Now, recently, uh, we introduced target bows this year, actually a couple of them, and they've just been crazy wild successes, and uh, the target archers are, are in love with uh, what they're doing for them and how they perform with them. You can't argue with that. So, Absolutely. You have to so, balance. I think it's a balance of things. Mm -hmm. You can't force people to buy something that they don't want. Right. 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 So is there any type? Uh, I know that, uh, you know, the two, 2017 bows are out uh, now, but is there any type of information that you can share with the listeners? And I'm not saying giveaway secrets, but... Maybe well, share going to happen, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe give give some insight to maybe what's coming in 2018, or maybe hey, pay attention to the riser, or pay attention to the cam. There's going to be some changes coming your way on, on those categories. No, we can't. I think the only thing we can disclose is that we're about neck deep in uh, new products, but uh, we're, we are excited about the fall and. Uh, we think we got something that uh, a few things that the market's really gonna recognize as uh, improvements. So Matt always tells people that ask that question that he could tell you, but he'd have to lock you up. And I, <laughs> but neither Mark nor I are gonna tell you anything because we don't want to be locked up. <laughs> well. I got two kids and one on the way, so being locked up probably sounds like a good idea some days. <laughs> but, but but then um i think lastly uh, you know with all the people with all the different bows that are out there and all of the different options for bows that are out there whether you're a speed freak wh whether you are you know you like the the um slow and steady game whatever kind of archer uh you are why should somebody choose a Matthews bow at the end of the day? Well, for one thing, uh, all our bows are purpose-built. So no matter where you are uh, in your archery passion, no matter what you do, if you're um, even between IBO and ASA target archery, I mean, there's going to be differences in bows, and we realize that, not one bow is going to be the perfect bow for everything. Uh, our goal is to make purpose-built equipment for very specific um, needs. The technologies that we're using currently in our target bows and in our hunting bows, you know, they're, we build them into our hunting bows, and then on the weekends they're winning tournaments. Is kind of what right. we say around here. The same exact technology that are in the hands of the most precise archers in the world, it's implemented into our hunting bows as well. And, you know, that is a staple for us. And there's things that people overlook. I mean, even if you just look at our axle system, there's nobody using quarter-inch axles. They are huge and beefy. Um, we're using giant ABS bearings and big uh, 5-8-inch bearings in the cams. And our zero-T axles to shim the cam 
to tune a bow to anybody's form, anybody's arrow. I mean, these are that's just the axle, and that's that goes unnoticed. But the guys that are putting in tens and tens of thousands of shots on these bows do notice it. You know, yeah. we build these things to be as robust and as solid over time as possible. Our short, wide limbs are incredibly torsionally resistant, and they sit super tight in our cups with the winged pads. They actually have grooves that the, the limb gets pushed into those grooves, so it's a press fit. Um, you know, these things make a difference on the tournament line and make a difference out in the field. I mean, if you take a tumble or you drop your bow, you know, the halon, I'm going to use that as an example, example we didn't get done with the halon and say oh no it's a little bit heavy you know it was purposely built to be the most rugged the most tough bow out there because that is so important it's you got to get that thing tuned inside it in and be able to trust it because if you cannot trust your equipment you know you're going to have problems and you're constantly in the back of your mind going to be thinking about that i dropped my halon 32 out of the tree stand this year and it took a long fall and I picked it up and nothing moved. It's, it's that feeling, it's that confidence that is built into these things that I think is so important that people overlook, in my opinion. It's nice to build a bowl such that whether the hunter or the target archer, when he shoots it, if he misses, we know that it wasn't necessarily the bowl that caused the miss. You know? <laughs> Right. And, right. Uh, you know, that, and that, you know, it, it sounds, it sounds a little funny, but that gives the guy that is using it, uh, a lot greater sense about his, his equipment in that too. It, it gives them more confidence to use it, you know? So that's, that, that's, that's the way we like to try to build things. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, guys, uh, we've been talking here for an hour, and I really appreciate you guys taking time to uh, come on the podcast and uh, chat with us. So, Gary and Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We enjoyed it, too. And that brings us to an end of another podcast. Huge shout-out to Gary and Mark for coming on the podcast and uh, talking Matthews with us. Huge shout-out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to download this podcast. Huge shout-out to all the partners of the podcast. Wasp Archery, Ozonics, Exodus Trail Cameras, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Ripcord Arrow Rests, Deer Lab and Gearhead Archery. Be sure to check out those sponsors, those partners, and um, support them because they support me. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, guys, if you haven't had the opportunity to go do it, go to bustedrack.com and check out the Nine Finger Chronicles t shirt that says profits from this shirt went to conservation and i am giving all of my profits to the national deer alliance so there's that check me out on facebook check me out on twitter check me out on instagram go to itunes subscribe and also leave a review if you want and what else do we have i think that's it guys have a good rest of your week have a great day 
Have a great rest of your month. Whatever. Smile. Because that's important too. And if you're going to be in a tree, man, wear your damn safety harness. Thank you.